is Afrobeats the sound of the future? The infectious genre hailing from Nigeria looks set to take over the world. Now, even if you don't know the music by name, you'll probably recognize some of the viral hits. From CK's Love No One Titi, which was the most Shazam song in the world in 2019. To the anthemic Jerusalemma by Master KG. Already huge across Africa, Europe and here in the UK, it's now making waves in the US too. Afrobeats acts are topping the Billboard Hot 100, selling out Madison Square Garden and collabing with huge pop names like Selena Gomez, Drake and Justin Bieber. So how do you explain this meteoric rise? What's the secret source behind their biggest hits? And where is the best place to start for a new fan? I'm Alexis French, and this is Start Here, a podcast brought to you by the Associated Board of the Royal Schools of Music. This episode, I'm joined by Christian Adolfo, journalist and author of A Quick Ting on Afrobeats, the first ever book on modern Afrobeats. He was the perfect guide to introduce me to this exciting emerging scene. So let's get into it. Christian, how are you doing? Good, thank you. How are you keeping? Yeah, really, really well. The sun is shining. The rain has abated for once. So uh, yeah, life is good. Looking forward to this chat. So Christian, at the beginning of all our episodes, we kick things off by asking our guests to give an elevator pitch, really. So feel free to give me your hardest sell. Why should I listen to Afrobeats? What's your elevator pitch? So I think, you know, a lot of black music in this context, sometimes in the UK or the wider diaspora, might feel like it has very hard negative connotations to some people. But when I think of Afrobeats, I think of positivity, I think of joy, I think of enjoyment as well. I think of sunshine, I think of resonance for you to to move your body in ways in which you never thought you'd be able to. But I think undoubtedly it's about home and bringing people together when I think about the music. And I think you can't help but put a smile on your face when those kind of warm drums come in and the brass starts to envelop your eardrums and invite you to the dance floor. Amazing. And I, I took that sense of home from your book, A Quick Ting on Afrobeats, that sense of belonging and receiving the baton and calling you home. It's just a, a very sort of beautiful sort of poetic sense throughout the book. And one thing I wanted to ask you, because you mentioned that there is a difference between Afrobeat in the singular and, and Afrobeats. Could you expand on that a little bit for our listeners? Yeah, so I say, you know, Afrobeat, the term itself coined by the late, great Felicuti. When you think about that music, it's not just one person. It's big brass. It's about very jazzy solos. And it's also about social and political commentary as the beat starts to build up and you jump into it. It's more considered, I think, um, in a way, and has elements of kind of jazz and funk and soul that underpin it. When I think of Afrobeats, I think of it as a younger nephew and niece. It's someone that's traveled and taken on different elements of context in which they've grown up in. And it's very much taken through an electronic filter or lens, but 
will have those kind of drum loops that underpin its mobility in a way, but also not being afraid to to try and experiment with different forms. So I think that's why I make the distinction be- between the two. Mm. It's probably less politically forthright in a way, mm. but there is that kind of feel-good element that underpins it that is inviting you to, to move. Got it. So so it's that sense of refraction. Yeah. You know, so it's Afrobeat seen through a sort of refracted lens. And you mentioned Felakuti there as the father of Afrobeat, as distinct from Afrobeats. Could you just trace that arc, if you would, from Felakuti to the present day and the music that we love and call Afrobeats? I think it's very interesting when you talk about him as a person because this is someone who obviously was born in Nigeria. And I think the the parallels that I find in terms of coming of age with your identity having pride in being African is a kind of flip to what a lot of us have with regard to being born in, in the West. So this is someone who comes from um, a very middle class, you could say quite well-to-do background. His mum tries to unite working class, middle class, black women against colonial oppression in Nigeria. She's also, um, history books say, the first woman in Nigeria to learn how to drive a car as well. So a pioneer in that sense in terms of mm. literally driving herself forward. Mm. And then he's sent to the UK to come study medicine. I think two of his siblings were already doctors. He forgoes that, wants to learn jazz and, you know, enrolls in Trinity College. And he begins to understand the plight of black people because being in Nigeria, obviously, he's one of many, but coming to UK context at the time as well, you know, encounters racism and encounters that the things that black people go through in different contexts around the world and kind of speaking to that experience. So creating this kind of first band, the Kula Libitos, and it, it's almost like a pastiche sort of an idea of jazz or high life, but it really isn't kind of set in stone. So it isn't until he goes back to Nigeria again and he realised something is missing in his music. And it's this point when his mom tells him to really kind of tap into his Africanness, his identity a lot more, you begin to see the early kind of festerings of what would become him himself in terms of talking about the plight of black people around the world and the social commentary and being unafraid to build those kind of long instrumentals, those kind of jazzy solos before his kind of commentary and lyrics come to the forefront. That's interesting. So contemporary Afrobeats music comes from this legacy of Felakuti and Afrobeat. Well, could you tell us then a little bit more about the term Afrobeats? which I think is fair to say describes, if I've understood correctly, a much more contemporary poppy sound. But you've also written about how this genre label is a little bit of a loaded term, which is perhaps too broadly applied. I just wanted to to ask you what you meant by that and um, if you could expand on that slightly. So I think when a musical movement of this size begins to become bigger, the term itself, I guess, Initially, when it started, was obviously one of endearment, one of enjoyment, which it still is. It's an umbrella term. It has many different subgenres that sit underneath it. So, you know, early on, it might have been, you know, emanate from kind of hip life, mm. um, Niger pop, to when it travels to the UK, to Afro swing, to elements of UK funky. You could say to a certain extent, drill, with regards to like the instrumentals as well, if you want to mm. dip into that a bit more deeper. 
and the kind of uh, drum rhythms as well that are taken from that. But it's interesting for me when, I guess you hear the term now, and because it's blown up to, to what it is, there is a school of thought where people do need that kind of level of, of like an intro to understand the base, the foundational aspects before, I guess, venturing off to what you categorise or what you define it by as well. Yeah. So I feel like that's where the antagonism or the controversy comes sometimes, especially when it hits the Black American market and the collaborations that have been going on for the last five years or so, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and people jumping on that. Is there a worry about the dilution of Afrobeat sound? And by that, I mean, is there a danger that actually the purity of that expression will be lost and the meaning will be lost and just subsumed within this sort of Amerabeats generic kind of sound as opposed to retaining its own distinct signature? Yeah, I think that's always a fear, especially when you look at albums, for example, I'm going to use Burner Boy as an example. So, you know, African Giant came out in 2019. The cohesion of the concept of it all from artwork to song titles and the choices of artists that feature on, on the album, do you feel like is very much grounded in Nigeria, but also there's a kind of pan-Africanism that comes through with regard to understanding the context of how Nigeria was founded and different elements and distinctions of blackness as not being a monolith in sound. Another album that comes out is Twice As Tall. And there you, you see him as like a big, almost like Godzilla-like figure. And behind him is the kind of pyramids in Timbuktu and Benin. And he's on essentially what looks like a motorway. And it's an interesting juxtaposition where it feels like he's leaving those kind of ancestral origins. And now on the motorway, modernization, et cetera, he's on a pathway to the world mm. and exploring himself and almost embodying this kind of superhero-like figure beside the point that, you know, Burner Boy does feel like that kind of Marvel character, but he's kind of growing up and he's he's moving forward to, to the West as well in, in direction. And that won a Grammy. Yeah. Arguably a lot of people have said that in terms of full package and storytelling and distinction and rawness and truth, African Giant should have won the album as opposed to Twice as Tall. But I think you begin to see like the leaning towards catering to more of a Western audience with regard to that, because that same cohesiveness that was there on African Giant isn't there on Twice as Tall. Interesting. And it kind of pricks people's ears up to him as a person and performance-wise where he's headed as well. Mm. So it's interesting to see that kind of juxtaposition there. We're coming back to that term Afrobeats and you've spoken about subgenres. I just wonder how helpful the term Afrobeats is in terms of diversifying the music itself, because clearly there are, there are a range of genres, subgenres, and different types of expression within, within that music. Is it a helpful label, in your opinion? It is, because you can then go into exploring, define it in different ways in which you want to. This is music in which, you know, I've grown to love by proxy of the high life Afrobeat, hip life records my, my parents used to play. Mm. But, you know, at some point, you know, there's a sense of independence you, you want to gain in terms of your rituals, your leisure activities. And for me, what I realised after, I gravitate to indie, electro sounds. And then when I reflect back on a lot of the artists and people that I liked, for example, like Black Party or Vampire Weekend, etc., was that there was some kind of African 
element in the music, which I didn't know at the time, but that was pulling me toward that. And I think when you think about Afrobeats as an umbrella term, there are no aspects underneath where people can be more towards that, the Niger pop, big kind of sounds that are going to be played at, you know, parties or in clubs where people are going to be popping bottles for enjoyment. Mm-hmm. Or there's a more kind of, probably I like, bench toward the more alternative sounds where the kids are dressing almost like freshly emo, indie kind of style. They very much care about the visual aspect. It's very much kind of DIY. And so many people, especially um, young people in diaspora, kind of connect with that as well because there's a price point of affordability where you can't dress like all the big designer names, et cetera. You're thinking about something that's a lot more kind of comfortable for you to kind of move and dance and be more fluid with, and you're not going to get turned away at a club anymore and you have your own kind of spaces too. So I think, yeah, there is all different kind of entry points in which you can jump in and dive into and not feel like you're alien within this kind of wider subculture. Yeah, amazing. So let's let's get into the music and the DNA of the music. And from everything that we've, we've spoken about, that's, that might be quite quite difficult to do in one sense. Is there a template? Is there an emotional template? Is there a musical template? Is there a structural template? Can we break down Afrobeats into those kind of component parts? And if, and if so, what would that look like, Christian? So if you're thinking about drums, for example, the tradition is leaning into from talking drums all the way to drums being programmed through machines. It's very much the foundation of this kind of conversation and the back and forth that these artists have, especially when it comes to, you know, the live context and that call and response. Mm. And a lot of it I very much emanate from the church and the praise and worship section, or some people might call it going for collection, because, you know, that environment especially is one in which you you feel exalted and it, it moves from hand claps to physically playing the drums the three, two kind of rhythm, that kind of clave, the offbeat, hmm. and that kind of kick, you know, it drives you, it moves you forward. And you know, another aspect of the, the music as well is there is the effortless code switching between mother tongue, whether it be, you know, speaking in Tui, Magani context, might be Yoruba or Igbo as well. And then on top of that as well, you have bits of London slang to Patois, to Pigeon English. So. It feels effortless with regard to, regardless of what kind of setting you're in, mm. there is this music where it kind of gets it and it goes between all these different kind of settings. And, you know, those kind of musical intonations and the way that you express words, they feel quite musical mm. already. Yeah. When you say these phrases. So, obviously, when you lend instrumentals and music as a bed to it, it's no wonder that, you know, it translates even more. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about your own journey with the music. Did you first hear this music at home? Was it the sort of thing that your parents were playing? Was this what you'd be taking to school on your Walkman, for instance? This is this is a great question. So my mum and dad, my dad used to DJ quite a lot in London and South East for like funerals, holy communings, etc. And my mum would almost be like the MC host of a lot of these events. So very quickly, subconsciously understood how to curate and build a vibrant environment for 
you know, a lot of aunties and uncles and people to celebrate because, you know, during the week, working security or cleaning, etc., they're not spoken to by or called by their first names and they feel very, very much invisible. And I realised, you know, on the weekends, this is the time for a lot of these people to come alive and feel like themselves again and set themselves good for the week through this music. And, and one connection I had with regard to the music of my parents was that my dad would involve me and my brothers in the selection of curation of the music. So every Sunday, uh, there'd be like an uncle who still has his um, record store in Dawson Ridley Road. And he would bring maybe 10 to 15 records imported from West Africa. And we'd sit around essentially like a listening party mm. and help curate what would be like a set for a forthcoming party. So my dad would use some as like a friend in school to say, what do you think of this song? What do you think of that song? And it was interesting because even though I understood my mother tongue, I didn't really necessarily speak it, but there was something in that he knew that using us as an ear for maybe younger crowd or these kind of new sounds would help his kind of mindset in regards to where he wanted to go when playing his music. So having that kind of context and that connection, I think when it came to kind of building this book and it's kind of very early beginnings, there were a lot of tracks which I didn't know the name of, but when I went on these mad kind of YouTube wormholes <laughs> and I started to dig a bit deeper, I was like, wow, mm. I'm getting different memories unlocked here from all these, all these sounds and now I can actually place the names and have my own kind of journey with it myself in terms of that curation. Amazing. So going back to those parties that your dad DJed at or the Afrobeat that you grew up with, what acts should people start with if they want to get to grips with that earlier era of music? Fell off, obviously, is like one of the main kind of cornerstones. But I think particularly within that context, there is no Afrobeat without, you know, the sensational drumming of the late seminal Tony Allen. Mm -hmm who in my own kind of journey was quite crazy because I talked about listening to indie music quite a lot. And the first time I ever heard his name mentioned was on a tune by Blur called Music Is My Radar. And Damon Auburn, he's a great lover of Afrobeat. He used, has had Tony Allen on his Africa Express musical project for a number of years. And there's a break in the song where he says, Tony Allen got me dancing. And that kind of loop and resonance of that, that lyric subconsciously I went and dug a bit deeper to understand his music and, you know, him as a foundational musician was so key to the development of the scene and very much so understanding, you know, instrumentalists are the core of what helps drive this music forward. When you think about the modern context where a lot of them are kind of siloed, it's so important to have that as a kind of basis. I think at present as well in the UK context, which is quite interesting, I think there's a growing love and appreciation of that lineage that continues. So you've got, you know, bands like S Collective, mm -hmm. who ironically, their drummer, Femi, he himself used to get the coach from Victoria to Paris to go and jam with Tony Allen for many hours at his home and kind of understand that kind of bedding of the music. And, you know, successively now they've, won a Mercury Music Prize. Yeah, and, absolutely. Amazing, amazing. Yeah, and like him as an example and Kokoroko, Yusuf Days, and wider back on the continent, the cavemen as well. These are all examples of people who listen to high life and Afrobeat, but give it a new kind of visa life and a body context for people to understand it as music that should be revered as those in their kind of classical canon. 
That's really interesting. I want to get back to that a little bit more. And in terms of, the, you know, the development of this canon and, you know, where it's been, what it's had, the importance of it culturally and musically and the significance of it in asserting a sense of identity and pride globally. Can you expand on that a little bit more for me? I think it's a stake in the ground because, you know, sometimes when black popular music, as I said, hits the mainstream, there is like this big clamour of features and articles as if there wasn't a whole development of other genres or things going on that helped it get to this point. And the idea that each genre or movement should be treated separately, I think it does a whole disservice to what is a very rich and historical legacy. So when I think about this music and I think about how it continues to evolve and allows kind of collaboration between different people from pop worlds, etc., into it, I think there is a vitality in that it comes from the world's youngest continent and the kind of wider impact it has or is having on culture around the world. And this music is that glue. And, you know, so many major labels and events and people you know, are essentially, in a way, doing this kind of creative scramble for Africa now to really <laughs> trying to find out what this kind of source or this kind of like vim is yeah. to get ideas or lean into it. But I think it's very important to build that context for one, so you don't lose that kind of sense of identity and know where things are built and coming from. Mm. But in two, share knowledge and tools and resources so it doesn't just go back to the west but allows people who are very much on the continent to to dream and build creatively whether they're on stage or whether they're behind the scenes so when it comes to 50 years moving etc we build our exhibitions and different kind of fashion shows all around this storytelling that this music does in a very fresh but also inviting way Okay, so one word that comes to mind is appropriation or even exploitation and the potential for both of those things. Are there any movements in the industry that are focused on looking after the grassroots? Are there figures with influence who are doing this particularly well right now? I think there's twofold of, of contexts in which I see people in there. So there might be people more in a kind of artist management, kind of PR field Mm. who previously used to be ravers but are now in that kind of corporate setting mm. so when it comes to having conversations you don't have to feel like you have to keep explaining yourself as to why people have spending habits in this way or why people particularly like going to that place to enjoy the music etc and there's also another side where you know those kind of DIY artists who have been hustling have been handing out flyers selling merch on their own are now in those positions understanding the context of what's kind of built the scene. That's very important with regard to, one, ensuring that this appropriation that we speak of doesn't continue. And, you know, if an artist is collaborating with a maybe more well-known Western artist on the track, where do they meet in the middle for them to have a more kind of authentic starting point to build in a studio setting or inviting them back to their country to understand the reality and getting an idea of the people that they're singing to or speaking to and what the music means to them. So. I think it kind of does work kind of both ways on any kind of artist management side, but also on the label side with regard to that projection of Africa or, or, or New Africa and how that all comes together. I think one example of someone I've seen who's navigated that quite well on both sides is Wiley Davis. Mm. 
he's high up in Sony Music. He's a manager of, of Thames as well. But he's also an artist as part of a duo called Showdown Camp out of Nigeria. They regularly hold the Palm Wine Festival for up and coming artists and creatives as well. But they've also taken that internationally to doing that in, in London over the last couple of years as a good kind of example of transporting the culture, but feeling very much grounded in regard to the varied lineups and ensuring it's just not the two or three major superstars are always getting their kind of platform. Yeah, that's super, super important. The fan culture in Afrobeats, obviously that would have exploded with the, the music itself, but what does that look like in terms of demographic and potency, if you will? Um, can you describe that for us? It's so interesting. I think about those kind of original contexts in which, for me anyway, in this country, and going through those kind of Afro-Caribbean society raves where early Wizkid, early Burner Boy might come over to do like a club here for two, three songs. Those are club environments which probably must have held two, three hundred at max. You can almost touch them on the stage. You can chat to them after as well, after the rave. And I think to see them now doing stadium tours and global tours, they've grinded and some of them, the musicality has grown and how they project the music, whether it be old school classics to new school songs they've created, how they create that experience of people enjoying their concerts has grown so much. So like it's been amazing to see that development, but it's also interesting it goes the other way where you know you have festivals like Afro Nation, arguably the biggest celebration of Afrobeats culture on scale. You know, the first one in 2019 in Portugal, bringing all different elements of diaspora from Europe, from the UK, from Africa, all in one place. And then where that's transferred to later in that year in December, coinciding with the year of return, which was initiative led by the Guardian Tourist Board to commemorate 400 years since the first ship left Jamestown in Accra to Jamestown, Virginia, and essentially bring in different people from the Black American context, European context, from UK, all back on the continent around this music over four days. And it did really feel like, you know, the music was that baton that was being passed and then leading people home. And it was very celebratory many different events that were going on. You know, it was shocker block in the streets during the day and in the night because there was this like palpable buzz of obviously feeling like you're back on, on home soil, but having so many different people and the conversations that different communities around an interest of fashion, music, tech, etc., and what could be truly like a cross-cultural collaboration was there very much in the background but it was the music that was soundtracking and building all these people together which was like amazing ranging from like 18 to to 40 45 yeah i've never seen anything like it in, in my life to be honest what about on the pop side of things who are the big stars that are most powerfully capturing the afrobeat sound today do you have say three acts to recommend for any listeners looking to start their afrobeats journey so I would say Burner Boy, for one, his live shows. In a way, I'd say there are probably like a modern version of being in a shrine with Fella to a certain extent. Wow, that's deep. Yeah, it's arguably, I think, one of the best live shows you can go and see. Wizkid is another artist who has that kind of back catalogue, that discography, 
with kind of classic feel good hits, but also you understand his own kind of journey as a person and coming of age as an artist through the music is incredible to see from a very kind of working class background. So you do feel like that um, boy done good element yeah. and achievement and pride that's come through. And another one, I think in terms of a band context, I'll definitely highlight the composers as well. They the are composers? Group, the composers, yeah. Wow. They're a group from, okay. originally from London, mm-hmm. but they have appeared on a number of Afrobeats artists' albums and even early J Huss album, Common Sense as well. You can hear their kind of musicality come through with the opening title track, Common Sense as well. So when you think about the idea of diaspora and the live element in music being brought back to the fold through London as a key location for this music and lovers of this music, you can't neglect their impact behind the scenes, yeah. Wonderful. Three fantastic recommendations. I think I'm going to head towards the composers, first of all. That sounds like a really interesting outfit. Thank you so much, Christina Dofer, for joining us on uh, Start Here today, taking us on that whistle-stop tour through Afrobeat and Afrobeats. I've learned so much. Can't wait to to listen to some of the artists you've mentioned. No, thank you for having me in them. Take care. Thank you for listening to Start Here, which is brought to you by the Associated Board of the Royal Schools of Music. If you enjoyed our interview, subscribe now to get more episodes direct to your feed. Got a genre you want us to unpack? Why not follow ABRSM on Twitter, TikTok or Instagram and tell us what we should get into next. See you next time. The team at ABRSM is Eleanor Hampton, Gemma Ralston, Rowena Taylor and me, Alexis French, ABRSM's Artistic Director. The creative director at Chalk and Blade is Ruth Barnes. The producer was Emily Wally, and the series was mixed by Nathan De Silva. The theme music is Vida Viva Amor by Alexis French, courtesy of Universal Music Publishing Group and Sony Music Entertainment. The intro track was Too Much to Ask by Hype Alexander and Wesley Williams, courtesy of Universal Production Music. (laughs) 